Hello everyone and welcome to Death Sentence. This is Eden, as you might have been able to tell already. And as Langdon mentioned when he did one of these standalone episodes a while ago, we are exploring a new format or a new option for this podcast. And as he also mentioned in the past, this is because we can only manage to record full episodes every two weeks or so because just of the realities of both of us having day jobs and other things going on. Um, So this is my first attempt at doing one of these episodes. To be honest, I'm a bit nervous. I usually do podcasts where two people are conversing and I've never really done anything in this format, but I'm sure it's going to be fine. The subject for today is Jeff Noon, an extremely important and talented and also somewhat underrated author of weird fiction, science fiction, and everything in between. But before that, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank all of you um, for listening to the podcast. I know that I am new and I will never be able to replace Gareth and just his well of knowledge and expertise and perspective on things and I am super privileged and honored and happy to be given this um, opportunity mostly to collaborate with Langdon with whom I've wanted to collaborate um, for a long while now and I'm taking this opportunity that he's not on the line to embarrass him a bit and say that I think that Langdon is one of the best metal, I don't know if you want to call it, journalists or writers, not just metal, music in general, out there today. His work is phenomenal, and I'm very happy that we have this opportunity to collaborate. And I'm very thankful to you as well, the listeners, you know, for sticking with us. Otherwise, this is just another scream into the void. And while that's important, um, that's not exactly what we have in mind with this podcast. So, Hi, um, thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, especially for me, something you want to see changed or brought back or innovated, please feel free to get in touch with us and let me know. Okay, so let's dive into it. Um, The structure of what I want to do today is I want to talk a bit about Jeff Noon, his biography and bibliography, just to introduce you to his work. Then we'll talk a little bit about the theory behind a lot of what he um, brings up in his books. And then we'll focus in on his latest series called the Nyquist novels, which is the main uh, thing that I want to talk about today. But I feel like I have to do some groundwork so that we can talk about them with an informed perspective. And then at the end, as usual... Um, we'll play some music, and I have a I have a doozy prepared for us for today. That's the plan. Okay, let's get started. So Jeff Noon was born in 1957 in England, in Lancashire. Although most of his life he spent in Manchester, a city which prefigures in a lot of his work. That kind of um, links us in a way because I spent two years in the UK in Chester which is a town not far from Manchester and a lot of the um, 
sort of English urban backdrop that he describes rings some familiar bells for me. He is a decorated writer. He's won the Arthur C. Clarke Award and multiple mentions in all the right places, in all the magazines and so on. And he's also cited by a lot of authors as extremely influential. His main claim to this influence is the novel Vert, V-U-R-T, published in 1993. That's actually his debut novel, although he did write and still does um, short stories before he wrote Vert. Vert is an incredibly interesting novel. It is about a gang or the leaders slash member of this gang running around Manchester and dabbling in mind-altering drugs. Um, those drugs alter reality itself and our perceptions of it and our dreams. The thing is, these drugs are ingested via feathers. You take those feathers and you put them in your mouth and you experience the trip. Vert is the name of the drug and the space into which the drugs take you. And it's an obvious play on virtual reality. Vert is this sort of imagined, shared reality that is more than virtual. In many ways, it is hyper-real in the sense of Baudrillard and other postmodern philosophers. Um, and these feathers come in many colors. You have your um, erotic verts that are pink in color. You have black verts, which are all about self-harm and pain. You have blue verts, which are like an idyllic, sort of blissful, utopian experience. And then you have silver verts, which are like editing tools. It's like having a Photoshop license. You can use it to edit other feathers and other verts. And then you have the coveted yellow verts, who give you access to this metaplane, this the vert behind the vert, a, a real more realer than even the hyper real of the vert. And these are extremely legal and extremely dangerous. And of course, most of the novel revolves around their acquisition. Um, the main hero has lost his sister, who is also his lover, by the way, um, Desdemona. And yes, that is a Shakespeare reference to Othello. Um, and he spends pretty much the rest of his life um, chasing down yellow feathers to find her since she disappeared down one of those vaults. It is an extremely fascinating and weird book that deals with hybridity, um, robots, dogs, men, women, shadows, smoke, all intermingle in making these realities. Of course, the vert is fluid and editable and malleable. And that theme of hybridity runs through Noon's work, and we will discuss it um, in the second part to prepare us for our discussion around Nyquist. Vert released in 93, and it was an incredibly important part of the nascent cyberpunk um, science fiction scene of the 90s. Many of the aesthetics and the terms and the themes of the book coincide with things like The Matrix um, and other works of that 
genre. Um, it, it really influenced the, 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 the aesthetics of that um, time. And this is the book that won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, right? which speaks to the centrality of it. Um, there was a sequel called Poland, which is also very good and weird. It goes deeper into the Greek mythology references and um, the um, Shakespeare parallels. There's also some Lewis Carroll, as, as in every creation that deals with you know, entering a new reality, going down the rabbit hole, all that stuff. Although the the place where Carol will be more influential is in Automated Alice that Noon wrote in 96, which is, as defined by him, a prequel. That is a third book continuing Alice's adventure in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. It is again set in Manchester, a, a future Manchester, and it is, again, very odd and bizarre and obviously the Lewis Carroll references there are um, extensive and he wrote a lot more stuff and he's active on Twitter he writes microfiction and recently he has released a series of books under the name the Nyquist Mysteries which are the books that I want to talk to you about today more in length so before we go on to the theory part of this um, episode and talk a bit about hybridity and ideas around that Let's introduce the Nyquist Mysteries, touch briefly on what they do with hybridity, so that then we can come back to them once we've got the theory out of the way. So the Nyquist Mysteries follow um, John Nyquist, who gives the series its name. He is the classic noir detective. He is an alcoholic. He's not very good at his job. He hasn't solved a case in a long time. He lives in the seedy part of town where he tries to get by and make Eck what sort of living he might out of his um, chosen and unfortunate career. But Nyquist also doesn't live in any normal city. Nyquist, at least in A Man of Shadows, released in 2017, which is the book which starts off this trilogy, lives in a city called Day Zone. It is very aptly named because it is surrounded by a dome onto which are connected various lights, projectors, neon signs, and other bodies of illumination. And day rules eternal within the city. Different parts of it enjoy different amounts of light, and their names come from light, illumination, heat, shadows. Um, and so on. So, for example, one part of town might be called Dawn, another one, the CD one with all the clubs, is called Body Heat, and so on and so forth. One part of town is in complete darkness because the lights above it were smashed on purpose or by accident, depending on who you ask. It's called Nocturna, um, and it is very different. It's more well-to-do, it's more settled, there are more open spaces, mansions, things of those sort. And in the city, Nyquist needs to solve a disappearance case. The daughter of a very important man, a man who runs the timelines by which the city operates because there's no natural cycle of the seasons or the days, is missing. And Nyquist must find her. In the second novel, The Body Library, Nyquist moves on from Day Zone after the resolution of that book, which we will not spoil. And he moves to a city called Storyville, again aptly named, 
as stories and books and language come to life, literally, inside the city walls. Um, polemics, poems, short stories, novels, folk tales, and so on, all take a life of their own. And Nyquist is thrust once again into this odd case of a disappearance inside a specific building. And upon entering this building, he discovers that this building is non-linear, it breaks reality in all sorts of ways, and in general seems to conform to the um, norms and styles of a postmodern literary work. And as he digs deeper, he starts to uncover the story of this book and why it was written, and so on. And the last of the novels, which was actually published this year, and I finished it today, which spurned this recording, is called Creeping Jenny. And very interestingly, in it, Nyquist finds himself in the countryside, going to a village called Hoxley, where he has been sent photographs, one of them containing the image of his long-lost father, who went into the dusk, the area of day zone that is neither night nor day, and is wreathed in deadly and monstrous and psychologically frightening mist. Suddenly he sees his dad in this photograph, and he goes to um, find out what became of him, on the way embroiled in the village's very weird um, traditions, wherein every day and its behavior is set by a different saint. So, for example, one saint went mute upon the beatific vision, so no one is allowed to talk. And when I say allowed, I mean it is enforced by supernatural means. If you talk too loud, then bad things will befall you. Another saint was struck dumb, for example, um, so, uh, sorry, blind, so now no one can see. Like, you literally go blind. And there are other weirder saints, like one where you're not allowed to go outside, one where all the villagers live inside one villager who lives inside them for the rest of the year, and other oddities. Now, why are we talking about this, and why is it so interesting? Beyond the fact that the books are just excellent, and Jeff Noon is a super accomplished writer, and they are really just really good mysteries and thriller novels, Jeff Noon also has this thing with hybridity, and specifically with urban hybridity. That is, the breakdown of the barrier between the urbanite denizens, the people who live inside a city, and the environment itself. We are used to thinking of the city as something separate from us. I mean, obviously, that seems logical. I live in a city, and it shapes me. Right? The streets, the traditions, what's possible and impossible. People are screaming outside my window right now, and I bet this recording is picking it up. It changes me, but it's not part of me. Right? I might be part of it because I'm counted among its citizens and I pay taxes here and vote and so on, but I, it's, it's a separate object um, from my physicality. Jeff Noon wants to ask, what if it wasn't? What if the lines between the human inhabitants of the city, the animal inhabitants of the city, in many cases, um, birds figure very centrally in Creeping Jenny, and the plants in the city, trees and grass, also figure prominently in, in many of the books. 
Um, in the body library, it's a tree that also bleeds ink instead of sap. What if these things were pores? What if our physical bodies were more fluid and hybrid with the city itself, with the non-human denizens who occupy them, and so on? And I think this question is not only very interesting, but also very important. As climate change begins to accelerate, more and more people are moving into cities, and it becomes obvious that the city is going to be the main form under which we experience climate change. Now, of course, it's not going to be the only form, and I totally, I'm totally against, you know, chauvinistic and bigoted ideas that see the rule as simplistic or irrelevant or inferior to the city in any way. Um, but soon most of the planet's population will be urban population. And that means that things like rising temperatures, collapse of biomes, rising seawater levels, um, the death of animals, and also their relocation and resurgence in many places will be experienced through the lens of the urban. And I think we no longer have the privilege of thinking about the urban as separate from us. So of course I'm not saying that we'll wake up and suddenly our cities will be only have day and night only in one neighborhood or stories will come to life. But how cities behave, how we are a part of their ecologies, how their ecologies affect us, will become more and more important as we go by. Now this idea of hybridity with the non-human and the machine, that is the non-human living things like dogs and plants and um, trees and flowers and bees and birds and so on, is not a new concept by now. Of course, when, I, when I'm talking about this, the first name that should come to your mind is Donna Haraway, right? the feminist um, researcher and professor who most famously wrote the Cyborg Manifesto, where she spoke of hybridity as a feminist opportunity, right? an opportunity to understand um, the machine, the scientific, the technological, and the animal, not just as objects that humanity acts upon and manipulates, but also as subjects that humanity can understand, be understood by, and interact in new and exciting ways. Um, and of course, she uh, used the term cyborg there. Right? Cyborg is a cybernetic individual, um, someone who has technology, and that technology can be mechanic or it can be biological, embedded into their body and even their mind. Right? To enhance, configure, morph, um, and so on, their body and their lives. And Haraway saw this as a potential path to escape, you know, traditionalism and conservatism and biopower and its control of who we are and um, how we operate. The thing is, the idea of the cyborg, even though it was maybe popularized or investigated in depth by Donna Haraway did not come from Donna Haraway. She did not actually invent this term. That dubious or illustrious um, credit, depending on how you see it, goes to two other men, Manfred Kleins and Nathan Klein. I swear to God, they chose their names on purpose to be confusing. 
These are two um, psychiatrists and psychological researchers who operated in the late 50s and early 60s, specifically and explicitly on the research of mental and physical states in space. So this was the days of the space race and the so-called Cold War, where um, the US and the USSR were racing to go to space, and it was also an age of space optimism, the future of humanity in many circles, especially Western circles, but also Soviet circles, was seen as inherently intertwined um, with space. And it wasn't just a question of technology, right? how to go there, how to go there fast, how to survive there, and so on. It was also a question of mentality. What are the kinds of people that we want to send up there? How can we make sure that they will survive mentally um, these journeys? And Kleins and Klein conducted research into um, these topics where they coined the term cyborg, cybernetic organism. And it was defined by them as a being which would have the means to regulate and alter previously autonom- uh, autonomic bodily processes for the use of chemical alterations in a sort of feedback loop, right? The systems would be inherently tied to each other. And I just read that definition from an incredible article called Heavenly Bodies, Why It Matters That Cyborgs Have Always Been About Disability, Mental Health, and Marginalization by Damien Williams. I super encourage you to go and read it. It's on their blog, um, A Future Worth Thinking About, and every single post on this blog is excellent. Um, and they use this post to talk about cyborgs, mental health, and, and this research. So, so critically, their research wasn't just about taking quote-unquote normal people, that is, abled, neurotypical um, subjects, and quote-unquote enhancing them with new techniques. It was specifically about people with neurodivergence, mental disabilities, and others, and the potential of treating those people, as society sees it, right, fixing them because of something wrong with them, for the exploration of space. Because space is so extreme and so inimical to anything human that we will need these people that know how to control their bodies with chemical alterations. So if that sounds wild, you probably know someone who does it. Taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications is altering your chemical balance using a cybernetic feedback loop, a network feedback loop. You take the drug, you see its effects, you increase dosage, you change the type of drug, and so on. Wouldn't people like that, that already have the capacity and the, not the freedom, but the predisposition to thinking about their mental states and bodies as something to be altered, wouldn't these people have potentials for the future of space travel, where we will need to make these alterations anyway? And this, by the way, also ties into the book that we spoke about on our full episode, um, Becky Chambers is To Be Taught a Fortunate, where the astronauts radically change their bodies during sleep and control their mental states in order to survive in space. Now, Kleins and Klein were very problematic individuals. Um, They conducted their research in an institute called the Rockland Institute. And that institute, at the same time when 
Kleins and Klein were working there was famous for coerced hospitalization and treating people against their will. We're still in a dark time for mentally disabled and otherwise disabled folks, but that was really a dark time um, where it was deemed scientific and correct to force experimentation on these people. But Kleins and Klein, regardless, um, paved the way for this discussion of altering people with technology, um, and specifically through chemical technology, which is, of course, a hybrid, right? You hybridize human thought and human chemical balances with technological tools and augmentations to provide them with new abilities. But essentially, and importantly for our discourse, in this case, it's not a normal, again, quote-unquote, as society sees it, a normal body that is enhanced, but a disabled body that uses existing treatment and existing challenges and existing advantages which it has over so-called abled bodies to be better equipped to handle stress, exploration, physical, um, physically challenging environments, and mentally challenging realities and situations. So kind of like Donna Haraway, the hybridity is a path towards something greater, but it challenges us to no longer think with these dichotomies of the abled and the disabled, the powerful and the weak, but rather with questions of adaptivity and the right um, person, the right skill set, the right perspective on reality um, being the desired one rather than a presupposed social norm that is enforced on all bodies equally. Hybridity becomes a fluid space, a space where all bodies can be abled, all bodies can be disabled, and being either doesn't carry stigma. It only carries potentialities and opportunities for action. Now, to bring all this back and to end this chapter on theory, although, of course, we could keep going and these, these things have insane ramifications and things we can delve deeper into, let's bring this back to Nyquist. It's never stated explicitly during the Nyquist mysteries that Nyquist is somehow neurodivergent or suffers from a sort of mental disability, but it becomes pretty obvious that he is, or he does, suffer from these things. First of all, he starts the books addicted to alcohol and to other substance abuses, which he um, uses to escape his very harsh reality where he doesn't know where his next paycheck is coming from. His mom died when he was young, his dad disappeared, and he's living in this um, very dangerous and um, busy city trying to you know, survive. He uses them to, to cope with his day-to-day -day reality, but he also suffers from an anxiety disorder. He is very scared of the future. He's very scared of himself and what he might do. He has fits of rage. He has fits of irrational, quote-unquote, again, behavior, leaps of, of, of logic and, and of the imagination. And a lot of the first book deals with him, you know, dealing with that fear, going to that place where his dad vanished, getting himself under control, channeling this anxiety into um, lucrative 
well, lucrative for him, right? Closing the case, earning his living, getting answers to the mysteries of his life, and so on. But as he travels down this path, it is also clear that these disabilities are very powerful for what he needs them to do. His anxiety allows him to solve the case, allows him to cut through things that others would give up on. His energies, this, this anxious sort of concern and, and this lack of ability to rest. The entire first book is very frenetic. He can't stop. He, like a light, he, keeps, he needs to keep moving. He's always with this excess of heat and action that allows him to cut to the core of the mystery and actually solve it. His fits of rage are, of course, useful as someone who you know, needs to apply force to get, to get answers at times. Um, and his fear and his projection of the future into this uh, terrible thing allow him to pierce through mysteries. You know, where others would take a simple explanation, his mind is used to monsters and spells and enchantments and so on that he actually finds in, in reality before him. And then in the body library, he leaves Dayzone, right, after the events of, of the first book, and goes to this new place where he is again met by terror, a sense of haunting, a sense of having events outside of your control. But, but critically, in the body library, he learns how to accept it, accept himself, accept his limitations, accept his past and his story and come to terms with it. Without spoiling it too much, Nyquist gets to see his own literary version. He sees the man that is written about in the book and he starts by attacking and fighting this man and then by surrendering to it, but finally a sort of acceptance, right? It's not me being subsumed inside of you or you being subsumed inside of me. It is the understanding that both of us make the whole that is Nyquist. And in the Creeping Jenny, we find a man transformed. He is much less anxious, much less fretful, much more direct, and he knows why he is doing what he's doing. He's no longer being led by the nose, as he is, be as he is led in Man of Shadows and in the Body Library. Here he has his trajectory. I will find my father. I will find the answers. Um, I will find the meaning to all of this, and if it's not there, then I will make it. So it's a story of a man coming to terms with his own darkness and his own narrative and his own um, limitations, not as disabilities, but as um, traits that help him in certain situations where others who are considered abled might be powerful. But even more importantly, this journey from nervous, destructive, and self-hating person to the Nyquist at the end of Creepy Jenny runs through an hybridity with the urban environments that Nyquist finds himself in. Again, without spoiling too much in Man of Shadows, there is a very powerful passage where Nyquist comes to the center of darkness. I should have said heart of darkness, shouldn't I? And then the literary reference would be complete. He, he finds himself in the in the midst of Nocturna and understands the nothingness at the core of the city and passes through it, experiences a void-like cold and 
emerges from it transformed suddenly the city seems to him less of a liability more of a you know where he grew up more a part of him more an essential energy um a component of of who he is and and by using the realities of the city that he learns to take into himself time um the seasons communality and so on he he manages to fight to the truth and to the resolution same thing in the body library where he starts by having a story told about him by the city and all sorts of political groups inside of it but he slowly learns how to use those powers to his advantage how to drink the ink as a, a cult inside the city is doing to become invisible to become faster to embroil himself in the story to lose the line between city story and the subject of the story which is nyquist himself and and the more he allows critically it is called the body library right critically the words are literally written on his skin in the form of tattoos um the in the city spell out um pun not intended a disease a fatal disease but in nyquist's case he he solves he solves the sentence right he understands how to take these words into his body how to use them how to transform to become them and then in hoaxley in creeping jenny he basically comes home he finds out that the nyquist family is from hoaxley and that these saints and whatever power they hold have always been a part of him and hoaxley is kind of a hybrid again of day zone and storyville time here is also important like in day zone where there's no night and day and things are basically run by a free market of time like you could choose which calendar to adhere to and supply and demand make more popular or less popular calendars there's a bit of social critique in here because the market constantly crashes and the people who run it try to convince people that it's fine it's just nature just like capitalism um in hoaxley time is measured by the saints every day has a different saints even though those saints are randomly selected um by the way they are it's not a calendar every day their behavior is dictated by a random saint but time is still broken down into these parcels and if you get a saint for example you have to sleep through the day that day is cancelled everyone sleeps no one does any work and and that day basically essentially disappears right and creeping jenny herself is some sort of spirit or force i'm not gonna spoil it to do with narrative and narratives and stories play a huge part in hoaxley and their traditions again mirroring storyville right here the narratives are told by myth and folklore and spells and power and history again also very english right the power of the land the power of tradition of people living in the same spot for hundreds of years and living their lives the same way for hundreds of years so it takes the element of time and the element of story and hybridizes it and finally nyquist himself becomes this perfect hybrid of these things he accepts the power of the saints he accepts the power of the story but crucially at the end he breaks away from that power he plays into all the roles he does what he came to do with his dad again i i don't want to spoil it he plays along with this ritual that is being cast on him he deals with creeping jenny and her story but he gets what he wanted out of it he figures out how to do it 
his way. How to take those powers, hybridize them into his body, and here there are, again, crucially, very important points about the body. There's the blood of the saints being injected into him. There's creeping Jenny and her tendrils. She's like a vegetative sort of monster, and her tendrils sink into Nyquist's flesh and become one with him. So he takes those powers, he embodies them in his body, just like the cyborg, and discovers new capabilities, new opportunities for action, new ways to live. And again, and finally, within these lived, built, architectural, urban environments. And his relationship with Dayzone and Storyville and Hoaxley are, are transformed by these transformations of his body as well. Right, the body and the city or the village are no longer two separate categories, but one category where time and myth and tradition and society and psychological states like anxiety attacks, which Nyquist has, um, depression, alcoholic fever and stupor and hangover and so on, all intermingle into one. So that's it for our Nyquist um discussion. Again, I, I implore you to go and read these books. They're excellent. Um, and to dig deeper into um, Jeff Snoon's backlog. He's one of the most fascinating authors, I feel, within weird science fiction. And I feel that The Nyquist Mysteries is his best work um, yet and displays truly a level of subtlety that is, um, as a writer myself, um, I'm envious of his ability to weave all these elements over three books almost um, seamlessly. So to close us off, I want to play something that is also very strange and odd. Um, this is from a band called Zithlia. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. X-Y-T-H-L-I-A from Minneapolis. And these guys play a very weird sort of technical death grind, I swear that's a genre, very fast, very dissonant, very avant-garde and experimental sort of music, and I can't think of anything else to play after this weird discussion about hybridity and cyborgs and so on. So I'm going to play a track from their last album called Immortality Through Quantum Suicide, yes, that's the name of the album, um, it released in July of this year. And we're going to play Ablation of Subconscious. So as always, enjoy and thanks for listening. <laughs> 